So we're going to be back in the book of Genesis, and we're going to be in Genesis chapter 12 this morning, just looking at uh, three verses. Uh, but these three verses are the most pivotal of all the verses in the book of Genesis. This, these three verses make up what is the plot twist. You know, you have in a good book or in a good, good uh, movie, you have that moment in the movie where you realize finally what the movie's been all about. If it's a good movie. Sometimes you don't ever get that and you're like, well, this was a waste of two hours of my time. But, but in most movies or most books, you get to that point where you realize, oh, this is what they've been building to. This is why this guy has been striving so hard. Or this is why this family has been so dysfunctional or whatever the story may be. And you realize that at that pivotal moment as the plot is revealed. Well, this is the revelation of the plot in the book of Genesis. These three verses are uh, the, the revelation of God as to what he's been doing, what he's been working towards this whole time. And I've told you as we've gone along chapter after chapter in the book of Genesis and we've looked at judgment upon judgment and sin upon sin. And I've told you, I'm, I've apologized several times for the fact that my sermons just have been all about judgment and God's, God's punishment on sin. I've told you to hold on because grace is coming. God's blessing, God's hope is coming. And we've seen little glimpses of it. As even at the very beginning with Adam and Eve, when they committed the sin in the garden, God sacrificed an animal and covered their sin. We also saw it in Genesis 3.15 when God makes a promise that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And we've seen little glimpses in some of the characters that we've studied so far, like Seth, where it says in chapter 4 that uh, in his days, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Or in Abel, the man of faith who trusted that his sacrifice was more than just a, a, a free will offering, that it was a guilt offering. Uh, or in Enoch, who walked with the Lord, and as a result, he was taken up. Or in Noah, who it says God found favor with. And all of these are little glimpses of something that God's doing, even alongside of the judgment that God would bring on the whole world through the flood. God yet finds favor with one man and his family. And we've seen this pattern also of this through this one man, Adam, sin entered the whole world. And we thought to start with, okay, maybe it's just it's just a generational thing. You know, as the generations go, this thing will work itself out and people will finally catch on. And yet we've seen time after time the failure of men to the point that God would judge the world in a flood and pronounce over man, man his final judgment, which was that the heart of men is only evil continually from his youth. And so we... We've come to learn not to trust in the goodness of man, not to trust in the hope that there would be a, 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 a sinful man that would come who would finally get things right, uh, a man of the lineage of Adam that would finally get things right. 
But now God is going to turn the story. And he's going to turn the story in the most unlikely of places with the most unlikely of characters because he wants to show us that it's not man that's going to fix this problem. He will be the one to fix the problem. And so let's read the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12, and then I'll pray and we'll continue. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make, you, make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will, dis- I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this grace that we see in these three verses. It's so simple. It's so abrupt. It's so contrary to the rest of the story that it has to stand out. It has to be something that we notice and we say this is different. This is a plot change. And Lord, as we look at Scripture, so often we tend to try to find ourselves in the passage and try to find some hero that we can look to and model our lives after. And yet, as we've looked at these last few, last 11 chapters, we've seen time and time again that even the best among us, even the ones that are considered righteous like Noah, could not be counted as an example for life. But you, in your graciousness, you continue your promise and you ultimately make a covenant with one man that through him all the nations will be blessed. And so, Lord, open our eyes to see this blessing today. Open our hearts to receive by faith the promise of the blessing that is to come through for all those who trust in you and trust in your promises. Father, bless us now as we study from your word. Give us understanding. Give me the words to say that would encourage and build up. And take away those words that would distract or lead astray. And may all things be done for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So the belief in physical blessings for spiritual obedience has become somewhat of a cottage industry in America these days. So-called preachers, if you turn on the the Christian TV station of your choice, so-called preachers like Joyce Myers and Joel Osteen set out to teach their faithful listeners the way to unlock God's blessings through what you might say or what you might do or what you might hope for. Some, like Osteen, hold to a psychological prosperity gospel. They believe that receiving blessings is all about having the right attitude about yourself. Others, like Joyce Myers, teach a similar gospel that you can receive physical blessings by doing something in the spiritual world, but with different means of receiving those blessings. To them, having enough faith or believing hard enough is the key to having a successful life. Now, while these teachers are new and the names are different, really the teachings aren't all that new. People from all walks of life 
and from various religions have taught some form of an, or another of this cause and effect to having blessings in this life. The Hindus believe in something called karma. In fact, that's a very popular word now today. If you watch television commercials and watch TV, as people throw around the word karma all the time today. The Buddhists hold to the belief in a sense of balance in the yin and the yang, that if you find balance in your life, you will be blessed and have peace. And honestly, there is a real sense in which the belief, that belief permeates Scripture as well. We've already seen this blessing and curse dichotomy as we've walked through the, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. If you think of Adam, Adam was promised blessings for obedience and he was promised a curse for disobedience. Think of Cain. Cain was promised blessings for faithfulness and a curse for sinfulness. The post-flood generations were promised fruitfulness as a blessing, but they were also promised a sword as a curse. We just know that that's the way life is. That there's a call. If there's a cause, then there's effect. If there's a good cause, then there's a good effect. If there's a bad cause, then there's a bad effect. And yet, we know that we can't obtain that level of balance. We can't build up enough good. We can't be perfectly obedient or, or obedient or faithful or positive in this life. Bono, the lead singer for the band U2, y'all may not know who Bono is, but I, I, I like the band U2, and so I, I know who Bono is. Bono said, uh, was reflecting on this contrast in an interview that he gave, and this is what he said. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace. To upend all that as you reap, so will you sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. That's between me and God. But I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm hope. I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am. And I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. We've been holding out for grace also as we've gone through these last 11 chapters. And at the end of chapter 11, we get to another genealogy. And the author of the book takes a microscope and he zooms in in the story on one family in the land of Ur, a family named uh, after their father, Terah. We get a little closer and we learn about this man named Abram and his wife, Sarah. And all we're told at the end of Genesis chapter 11 is that these two people 
uh, are totally incapable, really, of being any sort of hero. Abram is old. He's 75 years when we meet him. And Sarai is barren. So we know from the outset of this story, before we ever get started into the life of Abram and his wife, these are not our heroes. There is no, stop, uh, there's no strapping young man like Cain to embody all of our hopes. There's no fruitful, righteous man like Noah and his sons to whom we can cling. All we have are a dead man and a dead womb. But then there are these beautiful words in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Starting out right out of the gate, it says, Now the Lord said. Now remember, every good thing, every plot change, every new development in the story so far has started with these few words. The Lord said. God speaks to Abram by first giving him a simple commandment. Get up and go to the land that I will give you. But what follows that command is the wonderful part. He tells Abram, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and I will make you a blessing, and I will protect you, and I will use you to be a blessing to the world. This promise of God is what we call a covenant. And we've talked about covenants before, but I want to point out again that a covenant is similar to a contract between two parties. But there's a difference or there's two differences between what a covenant is and what a contract is. Often a covenant is uh, made between a greater party like a king and a lesser party like his subjects. And then second, a covenant can only be terminated in death. As I've pointed out before, the, the best example we have of a covenant today is the covenant of marriage, where we say, till death do we part. We are making a promise that lasts until death. And we've already seen some of the covenants in earlier, earlier chapters. We've seen the covenant of Adam. We've seen the covenant of Cain. We've seen the covenant of Noah. Now, most covenants follow a blessing curse model. These covenants usually lay out the terms of blessings and the terms of curses. You do this and you'll be blessed. You don't do this and you'll be cursed. But there's another kind of covenant that we find in the Bible. And it's the unconditional covenant. In an unconditional covenant... The offering party chooses to keep his end of the bargain regardless of whether the other party does so. Now notice, God gives Abram a command to go, but notice there's something missing from this promise, this covenant. There's no curse. Have you noticed that? It doesn't say, if you don't go, I'm going to curse you. Or if you don't stay in the land that I give you, then I'm going to curse you. He just says, go and I will bless you. There's no curse. No, in this covenant, it's not like the, cur the covenant with Adam, where he was told if he ate of the fruit, he would die. No, in this covenant, God is completely committed to keeping his end of the bargain. 
And we will see as the story progresses, you already know the story of Abraham. Abraham will fail miserably at being faithful to God. And yet, God is still faithful to Abraham. Now I want you to notice that there are three elements to this covenantal promise that God makes. First, God promises that He will make Abram into a great nation. Now remember, Abram is old and his wife is barren. This, by all human standards, is impossible. There is no way that Abram could be a great nation. And yet, God promises that he will give birth to a great nation. Now, I want you to remember back to the last time we were here and the story of the Tower of Babel because this story of Abram is set against the rebellion of the Tower of Babel. Babel is the perfect example of the prosperity gospel that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. It's the perfect example of having your best life now and striving to get all that you can right here in the moment. And if you listen to the most popular prosperity gospel preachers like Joel Osteen or or Joyce Myers, as I mentioned earlier, what they're concerned about is you getting what you can out of this life. Having your best life now. Having wealth and fame and health and power and all that you can have right here, right now. And Babel, the people of Babel wanted that very thing. They built a tower to exemplify how great they were. And did all that they could with human ingenuity and human uh, Willing willfulness. And the result of that was that God confused them and shattered their plans and scattered them to the four winds of the world, four corners of the world. Now, though, God takes this man who is incapable of doing anything to contribute to the purpose and plan of God. He's incapable of making a nation for himself. And yet God purposes to make a great nation through the most impossible of means. Second, God promises that he will make his name great. Remember also from the Tower of Babel that the people wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be highly exalted and to show how great and mighty they were and to glorify their own name. And now God takes this insignificant man, this man that nobody knows and is, doesn't matter to anybody in the world, and He says, I'm going to make you a great name. And I'm going to make it so that whenever someone hears the name of Abraham, they know the God of Abraham. And so even today, everyone in the world, regardless of whether they're Muslim or Jews or Christians, they know the name of Abraham and they know the God of Abraham because of what God has done through Abraham. So finally, God promises that he will make Abram Abram into a blessing. Now, there are two ways that this happens. The first way is apparent through the rest of the story of Genesis. Anyone who identifies with Abram 
and his family is going to be blessed. But anyone who rejects Abram and his family is going to be cursed. And the best example of this happening is in the story of Joseph. You know the story of Joseph. He's sold by his brothers into slavery. And yet every household he comes to, whether it's the household of Potiphar, whether it's the jail that he's in, or whether it's the Pharaoh of Egypt himself, every household into which he comes is blessed by the wisdom of Joseph. And ultimately, the whole nation of Egypt is blessed because of this descendant of Abraham. But the second way that this blessing is fulfilled is a little less obvious. Notice at the end of verse 3, it says that through Abraham, all families of the world will be blessed. Now, when we read that, we might think that God just intended to bless the world through the nation of Israel. And there are a number of ways in which that's true. But there's a more perfect way that God has fulfilled this blessing of the nations through Abraham. Galatians 3, 7 through 9 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Have you ever wondered why in VBS, I don't know if y'all did this when you were in Vacation Bible School, but I know we did, why are we saying, Father Abraham? And many sons, y'all know that song. And many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. So how can a bunch of Gentiles in Greenville or in Pineapple, Alabama, seeing that, father, that their father is Abraham, the Jew? We can sing it because of what Paul says here in Galatians 3, 7 through 9. All who trust in Jesus Christ by faith are sons of Abraham because Abraham was the original man of faith. God's purpose in blessing Abraham was to one day bless all of the world through the gospel. Paul even goes on to say in Galatians 3.16 that Jesus was the true offspring of Abraham. You see, brothers and sisters, the whole point of the promise of Abraham was to bless the world through one man. But that one man was not Abraham. That one man is Jesus. Through Jesus, people from every race and every tongue would be joined together into one holy nation of priests, as Peter says in 2 Peter 2, 9. Jesus is the name that is above every other name. As Peter says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And Jesus is the offspring that would bless the whole world. And so we find at the end of all times in Revelation 7, 9, people from every tribe and tongue and nation praising God and the Lamb. You see, friend... You may think that you can balance your life in such a way that the good will outweigh the evil and God will accept you. 
But that story has been told a thousand times over. And the end is always the same. There is no way to build up enough good karma. There is no way to do enough good deeds that will overshadow your bad deeds. Because those bad deeds are still done. They're still there. Turn to Christ who extends to you an unconditional and everlasting covenant. Receive His covenant by faith and be saved. Brothers and sisters, the grace of God should make us faithful. He has been faithful to us even when we were unfaithful. He has been gracious to us even when we were dead and barren. May we live faithfully before Him knowing that He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And because we have been blessed in Christ, we can be a blessing to others. Jesus tells His disciples in Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16, that they are to be salt and light. As followers of Jesus, we season the world like salt. We preserve it. We make it acceptable as of an offering to God. We preserve the world by displaying a way that is different, a way that is compassionate and gracious and good. And we shine a light into the darkness of this world by living in the light of the gospel. And so like Abraham, we are people of faith. And when we go out from this place, we are called to different places in the world different callings, and we shine with the light of faith in this world so that the world might be drawn to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Abraham. Not because Abraham was anything special. Lord, we know that from the story you show us that he is dead, he's nearly dead and his wife is ineffective as the mother of nations. And yet you make them effective through your purposes in their lives. So Father, bless us as we come to this time of conclusion in our, in our service. May we serve you with gladness as we go out. And may we do the things that you have called us to do. And use our callings for your good and for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.